This is a podcast by Householders Options to Protect the Environment, Hope Australia. We are a community environmental education and capacity building organisation based in Toowoomba, South East Queensland, Australia. This is a podcast in the series Eco Social Work in Australia. It was produced for Hope Australia in Toowoomba, Queensland, on and adjacent to the traditional lands of the Jarawa, Diablo, Yugara and Waka Waka peoples. Hope pays respect to the past, present and emerging leaders of all First Nations people in this country and acknowledges the unique contribution that their cultures make to contemporary Australia. Hello, my name is Andrew Nicholson and I am the producer of the Eco-Social Work in Australia podcast series. We live on an earth that is changing ways that will make it challenging for some, if not all humans, to live well into the future. The recent Australian bushfires, floods, COVID-19 pandemic and the changing climate are all consequences of a Western philosophical positioning that situates humans outside of their ecosystems, greatly affecting the quality of the human natural world relationship. This is the perspective of my guest on this episode of the podcast series, Dr. Susan Bailey. A particular recent research interest for Susan has focused on the way in which urgently needed high-level responses to global heating and climate change impacts are still too often being denied and resisted. Even as the climate emergency continues to unfold, there remains in some quarters what is known as a socially constructed silence on the subject. Susan and her colleagues believe that climate change denial and resistance can be theorised in part as a form of grief response to the damage and loss caused to the natural world by wide-scale human destructive impacts. In this episode, she talks with me about how her work might be applied within future eco-social work theorising and practice. So welcome, Susan, and great to speak with you today. Thank you, Andrew. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. So, Sue, I want to start the conversation, as with other guests, by asking you to introduce yourself more fully, give us some of the highlights of your social work background and some particular insights into how you first developed your awareness of the eco-social work turn within mainstream practice. Okay, so I want to begin, I guess, by positioning my body. So um, I am a what is called in Noongar language a wadjala, so that is a white person. A European person and I come from a Welsh and English stock and um, specifically coal miners in Wales and also tenant farmers in, in England. So my ancestors have for many, many years been involved in exploitation of one form or another of, of, of our beautiful ecosystems. And, and I sort of really, I guess, like to position myself um, there as a starting point because by doing that I'm also able to really strongly acknowledge and pay my deepest respect to um, Noongar people who are the custodians of this country on which I have I was born and which I live. Um, I'm speaking to you from Wajak Noongar country and in my connection and relationship with many of the elders and also leaders in that community, I've come to, to see that um, what, what I talk about in terms of eco-social work is actually how Aboriginal people and First Nations people across the world have thought about their deep love and deep connection to um, what they call mother, or, or Buja, earth. Um, 
and so that that's sort of my beginnings. We arrived in in Australia sort of in the mid eighteen hundreds. My ancestors and then um, were granted land um, that was stolen from Aboriginal people. So my my wealth has been very much um, built on the back of dispossession of, of Aboriginal country. So I really want to firmly position myself as a, as a settler, as a migrant, um, as someone who has really benefited from the deep care and love that, that um, Aboriginal people have given this beautiful country um, of ours. But of course, all of this is was is relatively new to me. This exploration of my history and this um, really wanting to understand and connect to my ancestors, and that was new to me. And it was encouraged for me to explore that by some of the elders that I worked alongside. So really seeing that that the place that you belong to, the country that you um, emerge out of or that you are connected to, forms a really strong part of your identity. Um, and it is that that has sort of I guess. And and then my mum used to take us for bush walks and, you know, we'd, we'd, in those days, there was a lot of bush around where we lived. And so we would, you know, see kangaroos and it was really exciting looking for orchids. And so my mum imbued in me a sense of love for country in a way that, that I'm really, you know, appreciating. So my, the sense of smell, the smells that I smell on country, the, the familiar plants and animals are all you know, connected to that very um, pivotal experience when I was a young person. Step forward 50 years, I guess. Um, I'm now a mother of four children, so there's a lot of story there that that can be told, but I'm not going to pull that thread today. Um, rather, I want to focus on um, the question that you asked, which was around how I became interested in eco-social work. And I guess one of the things that, that I felt deeply growing up as a woman um, was that I had been limited by opportunities just by the fact that I was in a female body. And it took me a little while to um, understand that. And it was through study and reading that then I enrolled in a social work degree. And it was like I thought, oh, I've come home. These are, these are This is my species. These are my people that, that think systemically about um, our context, but also have a really deep values base in the way that they think about each other. I guess part of what I realised is that I loved research and education as a change strategy in the social work space and then saw that um, an opportunity to do a PhD um, and I did it responding, trying to understand terrorism and interviewed social workers in um, Australia and East Timor around terrorism. And that journey led me to eco-social work. It was that that I realised that these expressions of violence against each other was connected to um, resources, but it was also connected to a deep, um, a deep disregard for others. Um, and I'm, I'm thinking of other with a capital O, the other, that, and, the, and the natural our ecosystems are, um, of course, seen as an other in Western philo philosophies. We've really, Western philosophies have invested very heavily in separating and pretending that we're separate from nature. And of course, this is all coming home to roost now. So, um, you know, we're now, um, as you highlighted in the introduction, in a really, in really dire situation where the very systems that we rely upon for our life to sustain us are actually becoming so damaged that um, it's actually threatening uh, not just our lives but the lives of and I can't I can't I can barely speak about the 
amount of lives that have been lost in other species. It, 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 it really um, is very painful. Um, as I was doing my PhD, I met my now partner, Dr. Nick Gerrish, whose work is also very, very significant. We work on this together and his work is in loss and grief. And so I was thinking about eco-social work and climate change um, and having conversations with him and then realised that what we what would what was helping us to be more compassionate to what we saw as a, an inability to respond to what we were seeing around us could actually be understood through a loss and grief framework. So I think I'm moving into another sort of part of the conversation. So I guess that that introduces me and um, I guess forms a bit of a, an introduction to how I came to um, exploring ecological grief uh, in social work. Really fascinating. So, and, uh, you know, as you, as you rightly say, you were starting to come on to that next question about the, the actual you know, fundamental underpinnings of green social work or eco-social work practice in 2021. But before that, you know, one thing I just took from your comments there, that very strong emphasis on place. Um, other guests in this series are talking about um, that whole emphasis on people as place, living well in place, that's starting to come through into eco-social work theory, uh, mentioning sort of academics like Kim Zapf in Canada as well that uh, have a similar sort of theme to that, you know, and again, it's interesting that some of it, as I understand it, some of his earlier thinking was based on, you know, Indigenous people's culture in that country. Um, but look, now let's let's come uh, straight on to that. The main sort of questions I want to ask you, which is, and I ask each guest this, you know, just a, a, almost a definitional question. So, what is green or eco-social work practice in 2021? I'll stay with eco-social work practice as the term from now on. I know there's a bit of debate about these various terms, but let's stay with eco-social work practice. Can you tell us a bit more, you started to there, about your own interpretations of what this term is about uh, or practice framework, however you want to describe it? And I'm particularly interested to know how your understandings may tie in with that so psychosocial perspective on grief and loss. Uh, as a way of understanding climate change, denialism and resistance, but whatever, however else you think it, it articulates with this new form of practice. Uh, so I guess in my work, I, I use the term eco-social work. So it is, and the reason that I use that is because it's got the hyphen in front of it, because I see that, that really um, the eco will frizzle away because all social work practice will be grounded in ecological systems. So I guess for me, um, I see all social work practice as being eco-social work, that, that really it's just about pushing um, our understandings and our theorising into the broader context of our ecosystem. So it's the context, you know, it's actually shifting the context for our practice from these social systems into the reality, which is we are part of an ecosystem. We are not separate to it. We are deeply embedded and reliant upon these eco, ecosystems for our survival. So for me, um, all social work is eco-social work. And that's part of, I guess, what I talk about is that this is the context for our practice. It's not a separate form. It's not sort of a, a different um, field of practice. It's not another domain of practice. It actually really flags that this is now the, uh, really flagging clearly that um, ecosystems are the context for our practice. 
Um, and so, you know, what that means is that we pay attention to place, but we also pay attention to uh, understanding and listening, deeply listening to other species, to other beings that are sharing this space with us and making sure that, that we pay attention to them in the same way that we pay attention to social relationships and social connections, um, right from the, you know, to use Brof and Brenner's framework, right from the, the individual right through to the ecosystem. So in a lot of my presentations, I just add an extra layer to um, Brof and Brenner's work um, and just say, this is our context. And the sooner that we acknowledge that and, and begin to practice and theorise um, from that perspective, then, then we're actually being honest about where we are. And I, and I use a particular fact here because um, this, this blew me away when I read it and I'll, I'll provide the reference, but from the top of Mount Everest to the bottom of the sea, um, it's only 20 kilometres. And, 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 I, and I didn't quite believe that. So I went and, and checked on that fact. But, but, I mean, I didn't go and measure it because that would be uh, beyond my skills. But um, it, it, just, it just stopped me in my tracks because it is such a small distance. And yet within that 20 kilometres, there is a subset of that that humans can live without you know, without um, life support systems like, you know, scuba deer or, or what you need up in mountains, oxygen. So for me, that realisation that this was a really tiny space and that the only thing protecting that was this, this you know, biosphere and the, the atmosphere around that, it, it changed everything for me. And it was just like, well, how, how are we actually not thinking about that as, our con as the context for our practice? Yeah. Um, and so part of what I started to do in my um, teaching and in my own um, private life, because it does, you know, when you start, when you realise this, you, you start taking action as an active citizen as well. Uh, but I started sort of exploring with people um, how they were thinking about this and, and realised that there was a lot of, you know, denialism and resistance to, to change. Um, and that I went through a phase of actually being really frustrated and really judgmental and really using that framing of so people are just self-interested, they're, they're just focused on their own needs. And, um, and I guess my, my understanding and analysis of that, of course they are, we've been marinating in neoliberalism. So, so really, you know, understanding that, that what, what I wanted to take into those conversations is not that judgment, but to actually think about what was going on for them. And it was in these conversations with my partner, um, Nick Gerrish, that we started thinking about, okay, so if we think about this as a loss uh, and grief response, then we can actually move to them with compassion and explore what is happening for people. Um, and I think about um, coal mining, for example, there's, there's you know, sort of a, a way that you can respond to that where it's quite judgmental. Um, but there's also a way that you can respond, which is, wow, there's a lot here that's happening for you um, and exploring the losses that will um, be, that, that will inevitably activate it in, in a person who has, 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 you know, thought about their whole 
career and the whole way of, of thinking about their relationship with Earth. Um, and we're telling them they can't think like that anymore, that we need to live differently in the world. Um, and so we started exploring a lot of those different loss and grief models and then came across one called the uh, dual process model um, by um, uh, Scott and Scoot, and I'll, and I'll provide that reference to you. And their work is so useful in thinking about um, what is happening uh, and how social workers can respond. Um, and do you want me to talk more about this here? Is that? Yeah, of course. And I think, it, it, I mean, in the best tradition of this holism idea of everything being joined to everything else, even within this interview, we're inevitably overlapping topics because everything is uh, joined to everything else in terms of subject. I mean, I think that you will prefigure to some extent some of the more specifics about how eco-social work intervention can start to help tackle climate change and other. So however you want to frame it, because this is part of the organic flow of a, a holistic interview. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> thank you. Um, I appreciate that. So I guess, you know, when you think about eco-social work um, using um, the loss and grief framework, it actually not only gives you an understanding and a way of responding with compassion, but it also, uh, the loss and grief model that we use, it also says that, that it's not just about responding with compassion to people's experiences of loss, it's actually also been involved in actively um, developing solution. And I guess it's a prefigurative social work. So thinking about what type of world we need and then making and moves to create that. Um, and so, you know, the prefigurative literature talks about building the shell of the, the sorry building the the new in the shell of the old and so I think that's a really powerful way of thinking about this so um, that loss and grief model says that that um, there are two orientations that people move through and just to I guess flag that they're talking about interpersonal loss so we're using a novel application of what is an interpersonal loss and grief model um, so what they say in that model is that people go through two, two things. There's a loss orientation um, and there's a restoration orientation. And what they say is that when people are in loss orientation, they're deeply feeling the, the loss of the, the person that they've lost, that they're, you know, really um, thinking of them a lot, doing some of those morning rituals, really engaging in that loss um, and um, trying to, um, you know, hold on to some of those things that were, were part of that relationship. Um, and um, what this model says is that for coping with loss, people need to also move into what are called, they call restoration-oriented activities. And so, for example, if in interpersonal loss, it might be that the person has to start doing the shopping, for example, that might have been the role that the, the partner did, the part the, that they've lost. Um, and so they tentatively explore these new ways of being in the world where they take up some of these ways of being and doing that that partner did that you've got to think about you've got to do new things you've got to be distracted from your grief a little bit you know so so you know just and and I don't 
I don't see that this is a process to move to the end, which is acceptance, um, because I think that the meaning making models of loss and grief are very much about how do we continue um, and connect to the person in a way that's different. They may not be there in physical form, but they're there in, in how we connect and how we remember them and some of those rituals. And so what we started thinking is, oh, there's actually, when you think about climate change and ecological degradation, we have actually talked about the first loss, which is um, absolutely, we call it the greatest grief of all in some of the work that we've put together. And the reason that we talk about that is because we were going through all of the different types of grief that are connected to ecological loss. There's existential grief, where there's a loss of, you know, our very existence is threatened. There's anticipatory grief, where um, we anticipate the, the future is going to be very different. There's going to be things that we're lost. And I think that when we think about our beautiful grandchildren and, and you know, the, the next generation coming through, it, it becomes, you know, very powerful. It's disenfranchised. So when, when you, we've got um, just around the corner from us, we've got a, a development, there's a new marina being built and all this beautiful Bush Forever site has been knocked down. Um, but when people talk about their grief around the loss of that, um, it's, it's, it's acknowledged by some groups of people, but in mainstream society, it's not seen as something that is um, grievable, that these, what is grievable are human beings. And people often feel this disenfranchised grief when um, they lose pets, for example, and for them, they've lost their best friend, but other people go, oh, it's just a dog. So that's an example of that. Um, it's preventable. So preventability is one of the things that lead to quite complex grief responses. And, and of course, this was something we've known about our behaviours as humans uh, have been affecting the planet. So there is that sense that this was preventable. That where there's a culpability there that we caused this that this is something that we did. And again, um, when um, in interpersonal loss, if there is a sense that a person has been responsible in some way for that death, then that really becomes quite complex and, and complicated for the person. Um, it's ambiguous. So we're saying that climate change is going to happen and that things are changing, but it's also not changing. So what we are starting to grieve is, is actually still here. Um, it's altered, but, but that it's still there. Um, and the other one that we talk about is that it's unprecedented, that, that really um, we've not had an experience of grief like this where all of those things come together. And so, you know, that's why we call it the greatest grief. I do want to say that... Um, I guess Aboriginal people have actually experienced these types of grief responses um, at the loss of um, their country and their song lines and all of those really um, important cultural processes. Um, culture is still strong, but the, the actual undermining and constant work to maintain culture is is you know, part of um, a grief response. And so I guess for us, when we think about this um, and we think about loss um, in terms of the loss orientation, there's that part of it. The second loss that we don't think is talked about often enough is that we're actually losing a way of life. 
to, to actually respond effectively to climate change or ecological degradation, we have to change the way that we live. Um, and so that's the second loss, which is not talked about. And it is a loss of culture for us that were educated in Western philosophy and have lived well. Um, we don't want to lose that. Um, and it means a lot of change and a lot of, you know, different things um, that we have to give up. So it's really huge when you think about those two losses that sit alongside of each other. And I think goes some way to explaining, um, along with some of the, the Machiavellian and some of those other um, theories which talk about, you know, vested interests and, and money making that we see happening. Um, that they can get away with that because we actually don't want to acknowledge these losses. Yeah, that 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 we we cannot actually imagine a world um, where we don't have what we have. So to get to how eco-social work can then respond to this, it's actually about okay, acknowledging that deep, deep, profound loss that many of us are are experiencing, but are quite it's almost too painful to go to um, because it feels so enormous. So when you hear about the reefs, the um, Great Barrier Reef in Australia being um, so damaged that it's not likely to survive. When you hear about the beautiful um, rainforests that were burnt, these are a forest that have never had fire go through them um, and now they're burnt and um not likely to recover in the same way. The amount of beautiful species that we've lost, so we're in a mass extinction um, event, and so those will they 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 will never come back. Those those creatures, um, and so part of what we can do as social workers is actually support people through through that loss, experiencing loss, and obviously. Um, responding to disasters is a big part of social work practice and, and uh, the skills that we bring to complex crises like we're experiencing are the exact skill set that's needed. Um, so the other is around some of the mental health responses that we have because COVID is an example of um, a consequence of ecological degradation and climate change. It's not a separate event. I think a lot of people have separated them. You know, COVID and other zoonotic um, diseases, they don't see that as part of climate change. But I think when you when you start looking at the genesis of some of these these pandemics, that it's very connected to to this. And so, working to support people through COVID anxiety, through, you know, managing lockdowns, through managing the um, catastrophic loss of life in, in other countries. Um, we're very, very lucky in Australia to have had um, the system set up that supported us to respond well. Um, and collective work, so actually working with people to um, come together in groups to support each other um, at a neighbourhood level, so actually... Um, you know, responding to those losses. And, and we see some of that's been happening over COVID and, and lockdown. But really it's about, you know, in that loss orientation, responding um, to those needs of humans, much the same way that we do in um, practice now. 
The second part of, so there are three, three ways that eco-social work can respond. The second is to actually think about that oscillation. So how do we actually move people from that loss orientation into restoration? So what are some of the strategies that we can use and how do we position ourselves? And so change strategies that are local and accessible, um, that are founded on relationship and connection, um, all of those things that are so important to human beings and not just um, connection to other human beings but to natural systems. And so I see that there is some work for us to do in connecting with uh, Aboriginal groups or First Nation groups um, to see how we can um, <laughs> not ask them to do something else for us but to see how we can actually um, you know, I talked about neoliberalism as marinade. So I, I see that there's some Aboriginal organisations that have managed to hold the marinade. I don't know that the strength of culture, they, they've kept it out. So what is it that we can do to actually um, support them, keep that marinade back? So whether it's changed the flavour of the marinade by having conversations as allies with, with other wadulas, other white people, um, but also ask what it is that we can do to support those, those that culture stay strong so that we can actually really pay attention to our connection to ecosystems in a way that is um, really whole and, and healthy. Um, and the third, third thing is to think about how we can set up some places of rest where people can practice some of that restoration coping. So where can we create spaces where people can practice their skills of being different in this, you know, what, what is a new, what needs to be a new way of, of being in the world? And so some of the, the obviously, the, some of the Aboriginal communities, but also um, setting up things like community gardens, as an example, um, communities so the transition towns movement is a really good example of that really positioning themselves as okay so we're in transition so that's that middle bit so we can actually um, demonstrate how we can live together well without um, exploiting the environment or damaging each other so um, and other species um, and so really looking at at seeing ourselves as um custodians and producers rather than consumers um, and so that also includes repairing and damaging degraded ecosystems there's a book called the mushroom at the end of the world um, which is this beautiful story of how um, uh, this this really degraded area of, of uh, forest which was harvested and just left that really denuded landscape but out of that springs this mushroom and around that mushroom, there's a whole community that, that then come together to um, harvest the mushroom. And so there's a community that, that builds from that. And so in that book, what she talks about is, is how we can think about the places where we can be prefigurative of these places where there are degraded um, environments and we can actually start working with them. Um, but actually being prefigurative, so making sure that we build <laughs> just systems so we're not going back into exploitation and damaging ecosystems, that we repair and um, support those degraded ecosystems. 
um, that we develop local food systems so people are connected to their their food in a way that um, is is really meaningful because it you know we produce I think we waste forty percent of the food that we produce so the the food industrial complex is really problematic. Um, Social farms and regenerative agriculture are just some of the examples. I'm sure there's, you know, lots of others, but, you know, look for places. Um, I love the Buy Nothing websites. You know, they're really, um, really highlighting examples of you actually don't need to consume um, and that what happens in those communities, which are, you know, um, online communities, but people sharing and swapping and, you um, anything that stops them having to produce um, and, um, yeah, I don't know, um, be consumers of products that just end up in landfill, you know, if we can keep using them as long as we can. So it means that social workers have to become active global citizens um, and we've already got all of the things that we need to actually be in this space. So we've got systems thinking, eco-social work means that we expand to ecosystems, that we use our critical analysis, that we um, are really good at knowing how change happens and, and using change strategies, and that we're really grounded in social, and, and I sort of add to that, ecological justice. Um, and so, you know, it's those things that we do automatically as social workers that um, position us as as people that are really needed, you know, in this in this time of great change and great despair. Um, yeah, so I feel like I've talked a lot. I think it's time <laughs> for a bit of a breath. Um, is there? Yeah, have you got any questions from that? No, I was just thinking in, in terms of the good old you know counselling model. Uh, where it was the, the client eighty twenty percent? And I not that you know, but you, the interviewer interviewee. So I think that's about yeah. right. You, you're supposed to be doing most of the talking. It shouldn't be that way. But listen, um, so that was a, a brilliant overview. It was such a rich section there. You offered us so many insights. I mean, just picking up that, I suppose, in a sense, the overall theme and flavour of your particular interests around grief and loss. You're clearly, you know, a passionate and articulate uh, academic spokesperson for that particular um, framework or that way of looking at um, practice generally. And it just struck me, you know, in, in this sort of tough, pragmatic culture that uh, is embodied in Australian everyday life, you know, we don't always have generally space for that important process of grief work. I mean, it's just, you know, it's paid lip service to and, and particularly in this area of, uh, you know, environmental damage, etc. It also struck me that, you know, there was a lot of parallels there, what you're talking about in the social work context to what's been going on in the psychology field. I mean, again, that holism approach of looking at interdisciplinary linkages, um, this is in no way to dis the social work field, but it seems to me from my recent readings that, that, you know, Australian psychology may have got to some of this stuff a bit earlier than we have. And they're, they're talking about similar issues there. And I'm just thinking, you know, the, the options of reaching out to our colleagues in psychology disciplines and making links um, to really strengthen this particular framing that you put forward. But look, just moving on through the interview, and, I, and again, I think you've, you've already covered this uh, to a large extent, the, the justification of why we need to be looking at this. But just to hammer this point home, which I, I asked the, the so what question of each guest in this series, 
as to why um, you know the Australian mainstream social work profession should be involved with eco social work approaches to things like climate change. Do you just want to say a bit more to make the you know I mean for for us who are you might call the converted the eco social work converted it's 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 a no brainer but um, not being elitist about it just to make the point for those who may be coming fresh to this topic. What is the just ultimate justification for mainstream social work adopting a much more ambitious approach to dealing with issues like climate change and other forms of environmental damage? Um, I don't think we've got any choice. I think that if, if you know, if we're responding to um, people's, people's troubles, you know, um, and what's before us, then, then we don't have a choice. We, this is actually the context, you know, I keep coming back to that. This is the context for our practice. And, and these are the, you know, the, we talk about wicked problems in social work. So these are the, they call, um, uh, in some of the literature, they talk about super wicked problem. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, connected to that is the point that you raised before around the importance of transdisciplinary work. Um, and, of course, psychology have been talking about eco-anxiety and ecological grief for, for a long time. Um, but there's also, you know, connecting to other disciplines that we don't traditionally work alongside. So, um, so I've been working with... Um, <laughs> um, I've been working with animal biologists... Um, I'm on a committee for a, a farm in a, connected to a university where it's a cross-discipline, well, it's transdisciplinary, but the disciplines that sit around the table for that, it's just awesome. But it strikes me that, that you know, the six or seven disciplines that sit around the, the table, we've got engineering, we've got animal biology, we've got plant biology, we've got um, uh, conservation academics, all sitting around the table and it just, you know, occurs to me that that, that way of thinking about our, our world as holism was, was here and, and is here and Aboriginal people think that way. So when we came along, the West decides to, let's see how this works and they break it all apart and, um, of course, it's not that easy to put back together again. So I think that um, for people who, and, and I... And I have students that I'm, I'm often having these conversations with students around, well, what's this? We've got enough to do. Why on earth is climate change, you know, I'm exhausted from helping people with mental health um, responses or with young people and using um, drug dependency. And I guess that it's actually about, you know, we do those analysis, those broad um, sociological analysis of what's going on for human human beings and quite often it's you know when we think about um, meaning making in human beings having a system where we are just seen as as an end to um, a profit for a, a, another organization um, is really problematic and and I think that when we've got so many people that have mental health issues or are struggling um, then you've got to look at systems and, and you've also got to look at the ecosystem, the health of the ecosystem in which those people are existing. And so, you know, connecting people. So um, just going back to how we think about some of the ecological um, discourses. So if you think about as a first step, 
what we can do is we can say, we know connection with natural systems helps people's mental health. We know that from our own experiences of bushwalking, but we also know that through some of the, the um, nature therapy um, approaches that, that psychology, eco-psychology talk about that. So, you know, at a first step, that instrumental use of nature to actually support the, the well-being um, some of the nature-guided interventions as well are really important then. Um, moving right through to that sort of deep ecology where, where you actually see that, that we are so um, intimately connected and reliant upon ecosystems for our survival that um, really valuing species and trees um, for what they do in and of themselves rather than the, their usefulness for human beings is a part of, you know, again, we can start rethinking our relationship to these things. And I'm, as I'm speaking, I'm looking outside at one of my um, trees, I call it my tree, a tree, or and um, how amazing that is as a, you know, as a, as a being, as a species, and how my, um, my seeing them as something that is a part of my community, I, I really sort of, see that 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 tree has a right to exist because it is there in and of itself and how often that that is challenged and how that comes in conflict with my neighbors who are just really annoyed because it drops leaves all the time and so I'm constantly sort of saying but it's carbon you know <laughs> we've taken it out and it's there on the floor it's there because it's it's life affirming it wants to put carbon into the soil to keep that enriched with life and all of those amazing microbes. And so, you know, when you start seeing it that way, and I know my um, many of um, the elders that I have listened to, that's that's what they've come to. And it's at a much deeper level for them because it's it's um, all their whole way of, so their ont ontological positioning is really, um, position that way. So I'm just coming to this. I'm just a baby to understanding these ways of thinking about the world. But but once you do, um, it actually enriches your life, but it also actually shifts what's important. Um, and I think for me, that's a part of the role of social work. It's like in any social work practice, you've got the people who who work, um, um, and I'm trying to think of the, the word, where they're working um, sort of as a, a not conservative, but but they're not the the people that are wanting to make radical change. They're just there, um, wanting to support people in their lives. Um, and you can use some of the ecosystems for that work. Then there are the people who are the radical um, change people, ra um, radical revolutionaries who actually you know see that there's it's really important for our survival to. Um, change the system and that we can do that by raising awareness of, of um, you know, how precious and how vulnerable our ecosystems are. But that all of that work is actually, when we see it as people struggling with a loss and grief, then it means for me, I come to it with compassion. Whereas before I was coming to it with with judgment, um, but now it, it's sort of, and I don't always get it, you know, I slip back into to judgment. <laughs> um, but on the whole, I really try to, you know, privilege that that sense of, you know, people need 
social workers to support them through this, this process. There's so much loss. There is so much grief. Um, and that, that's, that's our bread and butter. That's our work that we do so well. Um, and we know, yeah. So did that answer the question? I sort of yes, absolutely. Yeah. Again, very rich um, sort of articulation of of why social work should be involved with this. I, I just taking one thing that just off the top of my head, you know, it struck me again as as I think a lot of things that you've said, but not just yourself, but other guests. You know, one of the fundamental principles in all of this, um, you know, because we are talking about ecology and and connection of humans and nature, both their internal nature and external nature out there. There is no division actually really you know scientifically from dna point of view etc etc but we we've we've imagined that there is you know but it's yeah. about it's about relationship at the end of the day isn't it as you were talking about the tree outside and the different human perceptions of, of it it's almost struck me as a parallel you know we all have in our families you know perhaps a quirky eccentric individual there's a bit of a pain in the a you know at times but nonetheless you value them uh, just because they are who they are it's a shame that we couldn't apply the same thinking to other species mm. and we have the universal deck Declaration of Human Rights. How about the you know, Universal Declaration of Other Species Rights? And there have been attempts to do that over the years. But that whole thing about th we have close relationships with all of these um, species. They are part of us. We're part of them. And 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 that relationship that aspect is so important. Well, look, um, thank you for that, Sue. And and now coming as we move towards the end of this, um, you know, really great interview. I'm I'm wanting now start to shift the focus towards the future. And again, you've started to answer this. You know, as far as um, crystal ball gazing is concerned, you know, no one has that specific ability to achieve precise predictions about the future. But nonetheless, I ask each of my guests to offer some outline of a personal vision they might hold for a preferred future. You've already you've already you know referred to a preferred future in an earlier comment, but a preferred future in this case for eco social work practice, what it might look like in the future and i asked them to break that answer into two parts to cover the longer and shorter term imagined future so firstly sue given your research and teaching interests do you have a vision for where eco-social work practice could or should be headed within mainstream social work in australia that is if it is to achieve its full potential as a significant practice turn or new operational framework over the mid-term future let's say the next 10 years i think to begin with, really getting um, social work programs um, to actually acknowledge that we our context is a planet and it's a finite planet. That as a starting point will shift conversations because if we're having to, to think about the health of our ecosystems um, as a part of our practice, then it, it changes what we um, what we think about and how we think about our, our pra practice. Um, and so there's also, I think, um, so what, what part of what I've observed is that, that you know, when I, I have students who have done placements, eco-social work placements, and um, I have a couple who are trying to forge a career in eco-social work. And, of course, um, there's not a lot out there. So there is something about um, advocating and I can see that there's there's a place for organisations to actually um, connect or build um, relationships and collaborations to actually find how we can set up some ways of responding um, 
trialing and I know that people are doing this all across Australia they're 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 having to it's this idea of the prefigurative but when you're trying to build the new and the shell of the old it's it's also takes a lot of quite creative thinking about how you might do that so I think really getting people to uh, think about how they can connect to and form partnerships or collaborations with with other organisations. So some of the conversations we've been having are around connecting into some of the, the organisations that are around co doing conservation work. So seeing a place for social work there. Um, and really, uh, I've got another colleague who, and this is thinking about that instrumental, how we think about ecosystems, and she's she's developing veterinary social work. So looking at how she can support people's love of um, other species um, and using social work skills, but actually seeing that that is a place where our skills are important. So um, it's, 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 it's a complicated and I guess like a tapestry, um, people, maybe not a tapestry, a patchwork quilt, where people are doing different things in different ways and it's connected to context. But I think as a starting point, really getting social work programs to educate and um, highlight that, that this is the context and here are some examples of how you can do it. Here are some placements. Um, and, yeah, that it's, that it's a part of social work that, that is um, really can, can make your life, it can, be, it can make your world healthier and I'm talk, thinking about their, you know, social work is known to be under pressure, under-resourced. But if we can think broadly and connect to um, a different way of being a social worker, because we're thinking of it in terms of ecology and ecological systems, it can be healthier for everyone. The change process, you know... <laughs> Um, organizations don't change easily and so it's like we're we're on the Titanic and you know everyone's still sort of working in ways and I'm just uh, working in ways that that are contributing to climate change and ecological degradation and so I guess it's about thinking about how social work thinks about change strategies in those broader contexts as well so what are some of the things that that we can think about in terms of you know, how do we change um, cultures? How do we change um, e economic systems? And how do we change, you know, individual behaviours? And it's all around, um, you know, uh, advocacy, lobbying, changing the discourse, connecting with um, and building alliances with, with groups of people. So, and all, you can see all of that happening. And, and, and I guess in the broader context, there is a shift happening. Um, and I guess now it's about, thinking about what social work can contribute to those and how we can um, start supporting a discipline um, of eco-social work um, that is social work in the, you know, ecological ecosystems um, to be responsive to what's there and what people need. You know, so having the conversations about, um, because conversations lead to change and building connections, um, getting having conversations with people in power um, and really just continuing to support and build alliances, you know, look for where there's things happening and 
And that's what I'm doing with students at the moment. They're doing a big asset map of, of a health and education precinct and they're looking for signs of sustainability and then supporting just by, by being alongside of those people and having conversations and then, and then forming alliances and connections. So we've got all the skills. Um, it's just about shifting our focus um, a little bit to the, eco, the ecological stuff. And I guess, too, a big part of it is dealing with our grief. We won't, we won't go there if we haven't felt our grief because to go there will, will make you feel. When you start talking about climate change, people stop. They don't want to. They don't want to talk about the, the, the pain and they don't want to talk about how much loss there has been. They generally want to stop. They want things to go on as normal. Um, and so, you know, we can hold spaces for those conversations. And there is a, um, an American organisation. It's a community, came from community. It's called the Good Grief Network. Um, and they have amazing resources and they hold, um, they've developed a 10-step program modelled on, you know, programs like um, Al-Anon and Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, where people actually come to terms with their grief. So they sit, they meet for 10 weeks and, and work through the steps and then um, they're doing some amazing work and they're getting really good support across the world. Um, so, you know, they're the things to look out for these, to look out for these resources and to connect in with them because, um, but I guess to begin with, process your own grief and engage with your own grief um, because I think that's, as a starting point, is the hardest thing to do because it's so enormous, Andrew, the pain that we feel when we look around and realise what we've done. You know, and I come back to what I started with, with that, that my family um, were coal miners and, and, you know, part of the, the Western agricultural um, business that you know destroyed whole ecosystems to to plant um, and make money and so for me this is it feels like coming to terms with that coming to terms with my own pain and then saying okay I now have some responsibility to actually be part of the solution um, in terms of responding yeah and supporting people yeah. And so, um, you, you know, coming, look, again, very um, detailed and, uh, you know, multi-layered response there. Yeah. I, was I was going to ask, no, it's fantastic. I was going to ask you this question, but again, I think you, you, you have answered it, but the corollary of everything you've said, I mean, this series dwells mainly on the progressive and positive aspects of the diffusion of eco-social work ideas and, and the potential for that in Australia. But I also ask each of my guests what they think about the possible challenges or restraining influences that may be slowing down the adoption of eco-social work into the social work mainstream. I now, I'm assuming that, you know, you would say, well, uh, one of those things is we need more of all of the stuff that you've said, you know, a greater focus, more systematic focus on, you know, environmental loss and grief, uh, more transdisciplinary, transdisciplinary or interdisciplinary work. But are there any other ideas that you want to put forward under that heading of, look, you know, what is actually slowing up the adoption? Are there any sort of key blockages you think that um, we, we should focus on to try and remove? I think 
love. I think really having conversations about love again in social work. And I know that that um, there are some people that have talked about it. And so Naomi Godden um, talks about love as well. Um, Louise Morley is another person who wrote quite a while ago now on the place of love in social work. Because if you love something, you won't destroy it. Um, I've got a colleague who, who's done a TED Talk. Her name's Ellen Walker. She identifies as an eco-social worker. And she has carved out this role for herself where she educates, she loves soil and she loves all of the, the little, hum, not the little humans, or the little beings that are in the soil. And so her work is taking microphones, not, not microphones, microscopes around to different places and showing people what is in the soil so that they fall in love with it and then want to support and nurture it. So there's amazing, you know, people who are leading the way. So I guess part of um, part of the, this response is, is, again, looking for examples of stuff happening. But so I said love is part of the solution because what we see, um, um, so the, the opposite of love is, is disregard or, you know, some people say the opposite of love is not hate. It's, 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 it's nothing. It's dispassion. It's, it's having no reaction. And I think that until we can generate emotion, um, then that, that lack of emotion, that lack of going there is, is part of the problem that, that holds us back. Because to be seen to be um, caring and to seem to be um, having emotions is is part of what we've been socialised a little bit in, in in our profession to to not have. You know, we've got to be objective, dispassionate. Um, uh, uh, you know, evidence informed um, practitioners, and and I think that 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 time, the time for that, has passed that we actually need to start using feeling and engaging in, in love, love practice again. Yeah. That's um, really interesting. I mean, you know, what comes to mind there is the, is the medical model, you know, as you were talking there and, you know, within medicine, that, that need perhaps quite validly to distance yourself, although not entirely from human suffering because you're seeing, you know, uh, mortality and, and severe illness all the time. But as you say, uh, it's been highly influential in past models of social work history, but uh, is it really serving our interests now? Mm. So um, as we come up to the end, more or less at the end of this very fascinating discussion, um, you've given us some intriguing ideas to consider following this podcast. Many, many ideas, actually. I can see the episode notes for this um, episode are going to be very, um, very voluminous. Um, but um, to further sharp, and which is great, you know, because I think that's what we need. We, we need more of an, an evidence base and we need more of a knowledge base for the up and coming, um, you know, social work practitioners who want to actually fully get into this approach. But to further sharpen the focus for listeners just about as we leave this conversation, do you have a, a shorter take home message or one key idea from our conversation today that you think helps represent your comments or your take on the subject of eco-social work practice? When I so so in generating a response or thinking about a response to this, I've been reflecting back and thinking about my own journey and and wondering what was 
the bit that that led me and I think that I can say that there's lots of bits that that through my family history that led me to this so I I guess it's it my take home would be something about um connect to the soil connect to your place um and see yourself as part of an ecosystem um and part of of um yeah because i think that your point that we're all interconnected you know that that we have molecules of stardust in in us you know that idea of connection is so powerful and i think once you start understanding that um, and deeply believing that um, as a starting point, um, then you can't help but be an eco-social worker. Connect to the place where you were born if you're able to. Um, and if you're not there, um, the place that you are now. And ask questions about the other species that share that space and, and see how they're doing. So, so I guess what I'm doing is taking it out of the professional into the personal. So I guess that's a key message for me is that this isn't just about um, your professional world. This is about your whole being, um, both as a personal and a professional. Um, and so, again, collapsing those dichotomies that, that Western um, philosophies have been so good at helping us understand how things work. But when we actually try to put them together again, that's when we start realising complexity and um, the importance of connection. So I don't know if that was the short, succinct answer that you were after. I, I, no, listen, I think that's a fantastic place. Um, place, no, no pun intended to leave it. I mean, talking about yeah. the love, the love of place, love generally, you know, the need for to bring back love into this profession of ours that anchoring of ourselves to place, how to live well in place, thinking about that, people as place. Also that stardust connection, you know, again, which has been long, you know, sort of articulated, mm. going back to the likes of Carl Sagan, you know, the pale blue dot, our place in the cosmos. Yeah. So our stardust yeah. connection to everything around us. I mean, it's almost, it's poetical, but it, in fact, it's very pragmatic. So what a fantastic place to, to leave the discussion on that. And so I just want to say, it's been marvellous to talk with you today. I'm certain you have given our audience great insights, which can help inform their own thinking, help them start further conversations about eco-social work adoption with their friends, colleagues, within employing organisations or professional associations. It just remains for me now, though, on behalf of Household Adoptions to Protect the Environment, to thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Andrew. You're very welcome. And I just also wanted to say thank you to you for creating this space for these conversations because um, I really understand how much work it takes and um, persistence. So thank you. I, I really appreciate the, the opportunity to, to talk about this. It's so important to me and, and so heartfelt. So I really, um, really love the opportunity to to share the conversation well likewise so thank you again thank you you've been listening to a podcast episode in the series eco social work in australia produced for householders options to protect the environment please consult the episode text notes for possible references to topics discussed and relevant contact details should you wish to respond to anything you've heard my name is andrew nicholson producer of the series and thank you for listening.